Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he charges $10 but he's willing to negotiate, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you sir? I'm good thank you. Uh, I'm going to try and guess that tagline. Is it Drillbit Taylor? No, 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 no. But you're kind of on the right lines, it's Juice Bigelow. (laughs) Yeah, of course, because Drillbit Taylor, the John Hughes written movie about a bodyguard also featured copious kind of sex jokes mm. actually i haven't seen it but i know it was the the original idea was john hughes and that seth rogan and evan goldberg rewrote it so there probably was some sex jokes in it mm, you'd think so and i think that makes a nice little kind of bookend to these um tagline intros because we had american gigolo mm-hmm. the other day and yeah. uh juice bigolo this which is that film's kind of spiritual predecessor or successor Oh yeah, that one, because it came afterwards, <laughs> obviously. Enough of that nonsense, let's get into uh, some news this week, and I uh, wrapped up last week's podcast by saying that we had a really exciting episode this week, I'm really excited about it, but we would uh, ultimately have water poured over it if someone died, and uh, I felt like that was quite a glib comment to make, and well, didn't it come true? Because uh, Abbas Karastami died, the uh, kind of renowned Iranian filmmaker, which made me feel terrible, but also just goes to prove just that 2016 is the worst. Yeah, I mean, the news, I mean, that was, it was a really horrible news. And also just in light of the fact it happened the day after we had recorded that episode. And I think the news broke as I was editing it. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, this is really terrible. Also, because like I'd just seen his name also on the list of people who'd been added to the academy this year so there was this and, and he was one of the people who i had thought about putting down in our list and i thought ah no there's a long enough list of new academy members without including him so uh, he was someone who i'd been thinking of thinking you know oh, it's great that he's in the academy now and then to get the news that he had died after a what seems like a very short illness because i think it was announced that he had cancer only like a couple of months ago mm-hmm. was uh was very very kind of shocking Mm, yeah and i mean kind of running down his films they're all kind of widely acclaimed very well thought of kind of world cinema masterpieces i guess he was one of the kind of like prominent masters working at this uh, this kind of in this era wasn't he? he seemed to be kind of reasonably prolific yeah he he put out films pretty much every other year for for most of the last 20 years which is a hell of a clip to be going and i think what was really great about him was that he was a very kind of a restless filmmaker he changed up his style quite a lot he was someone who seemed to always be questing for a different take on the notion of cinema most evident in his film 10 from 2002 which was a kind of a full-throated embrace of what digital cinema could be he was someone who also i think and this is kind of a a kind of a crucial thing was he was an iranian filmmaker at a time when tensions between Iran and the West grew ever higher and I think there's something to be said for the importance of someone being so prominent on the world stage offering a glimpse of Iranian life which was entirely separate from the from the highly politicized depiction we were being offered by the news media and you know our our governments where he was essentially making films which said Iranians have exactly the same problems that people in the west have we have the same fears the same passions the same 
uncertainties about the world and i think that his his work um i think for a lot of people open their eyes to this country that is you know has you know t- terrible kind of problems and 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 everything but certainly was being demonized and stigmatized in a way that probably wasn't deserved yes a very kind of sad loss um and it will kind of leave quite a big hole on the world stage in other news um we have uh, a kind of a weird controversy happening because in the new star trek film uh, it's been revealed that the writer is it simon Pegg has solely written this one He's definitely co-written it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I, so he has had a big hand in shaping this one. Okay, but uh, the writers of um, of the new Star Trek film, Star Trek Beyond, including Mister Pegg, uh, have revealed that the character of Sulu uh, is gay. And um, whilst that is, you know, kind of nothing unusual, I guess, the whole thing seems to have been blown up by the fact that. Uh, the internet and the world in general seem to turn to uh, the originator of that role, Sulu, George Takai, as if to kind of like gain his approval. He's a prominent uh, gay actor, a gay rights activist, um, and kind of very vocal on social media, etc. And he was none too happy about it, was he, Ed? No, and his argument, I thought, was very interesting about it because he was basically saying that they made Sulu gay because George Takai is gay. So you, they're, they're conflating actor and character. And his kind of uh, problem with that was that if they are saying now that Sulu is gay and that's canonical, that means that Sulu in the original series would have to have been closeted because he wasn't explicitly a gay character then. And uh, I can't claim to be an authority on the original series, but I imagine that they probably mentioned him having girlfriends or a wife at some point in it. So, it, and, and that would conflict with Gene Roddenberry's kind of utopian vision of the future. And there's a, you know, and there's something I think to be said there about the problems it raises and the kind of the slightly, arguably the glib way in which they have decided that this character is going to be gay at this point in the series kind of history. Mm. I was kind of surprised because what it showed to me was that, there's like a Star Trek canon. I didn't mm. realize that was even a thing. I thought that this was just a you know the new films that like Abrams did and stuff were just like new starting things. And I thought that Spock had the cameo in the old one because you know it was just like a you know fan service or whatever. But they're all supposed to like stitch together. Is that is that a thing? I think it's more that the the kind of the resetting and the time travel in the the Star Trek reboot from two thousand nine changed some things. Mm. Okay. Uh, and allows them to go off and do their own not as interesting adventures but like this kind of thing is is where you look at and you say i think the argument that kirk's dad dying slightly earlier than he did in the original version of the story would have this kind of chaos theory reverberation where sulu ends up gay <laughs> you know that's that seems to be a bit of a stretch uh, because those are the really the only that the the only real ways that you can do it is you either say oh it's a new continuity now so he can be gay in this one without him having to be gay in the original or you have to say he was gay in both versions in which case in the original series he was kind of hiding who he was which again conflicts with Gene Roddenberry's vision I don't really care either way I think it's really cool that they made him gay I think it's something that Star Trek as far as I'm aware has never had an openly gay character so it's a nice step in the right direction but it does feel like one of those things where you think, 
it's it was really complicated having it be an existing character as opposed to creating a new character. Mm, yeah, that might have been kind of better, I guess. Although I think the jury's out on Kirk. To be honest, he'll fuck anything. Um, <laughs> like he's kind of proved himself to be consistently a filthy otter in all regards. Um, so yeah, well, that was kind of the news this week. We're going to kind of just jump straight into our main topic. We promised at the end of last week's show that we had a very different uh, show on this kind of this week, um, and we're going to speak about a Broadway musical, uh, a Broadway musical called Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, my name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait. Now. This podcast is a film podcast, really. I mean, we do delve into TV quite a lot. But yeah, mostly film, some TV. Why on earth, Ed, are we dedicating a whole episode to a Broadway musical that neither of us have seen? Well, partly because it's something that you and I, off-air, have both become obsessed with in our own ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of been listening to the cast album, which has been kind of this big phenomenon and we'll get into that but uh and so it kind of felt like something that we wanted to talk about because it's the thing that's in the ether and something that will probably be a film at some point so there's a slight connection there but we wanted to talk about it at this particular time because uh yesterday at the time we were recording this the creator of the show lin-manuel miranda and two of his cast members leslie odom jr and philippa sue left the show and so we've kind of reached a very significant milestone in the history of this kind of cultural phenomenon. And it seems like this would be a good time to look back on the last kind of year or so of Hamilton mania kind of growing to fever pitch uh, and, Mm. and kind of examining why exactly a musical that most of the world hasn't seen has become an obsession for a huge number of people across the globe. Mm. And yeah, this is kind of a, a little confession I have to make, Ed, that um, when we were talking about, we were kind of putting together the end of year show last year, and we were kind of batting around kind of stories that we wanted to do, um, and kind of what we wanted to talk about as the, as the kind of the big themes that ran through the year and, and through the news in 2015 and stuff. And I me kind of posted a message that said, something on the lines of, I really like to talk about Hamilton and about how it's become like a cultural phenomenon. And I remembered, like, just, like, very, very distinctly thinking, fuck off, Ed, that's ridiculous. We're not going to talk about a <laughs> musical that you haven't seen and I don't even know anything about, right? And then about two months ago, I have got the soundtrack now, and here we are. <laughs> so yeah, th- that is I, that is really kind of uh, a testament to uh, the, the kind of the power of this thing. The way I kind of think about it is that... I don't know if you've ever seen the Aaron Sorkin TV show Sports Night. I have, yes. Do you remember the episode where the character of Dana, played by Felicity Huffman, goes to watch The Lion King? Uh, I'm going to say yes, even though I know the answer is no. I do not remember it. Okay, well, there's an episode where she goes to see the Broadway production of The Lion King and she's deeply sceptical about it. She gets a... Uh, she gets told to go see it by her boss, played by Robert Guillaume, who, of course, played, voiced Rafiki in the film version of The Lion King. And... 
she kind of goes, she's very skeptical and she comes back and she is this kind of wide eyed manic looking <laughs> eyes that she's really had like a life changing experience. And that as you know, and I always thought that that was really funny, but also like a really silly thing. It's like, why would anyone come away from a show with that kind of a reaction? And like that, is all i can think of whenever i think of my own experience of like discovering hamilton is like i was very very skeptical when i heard the outline of it which for people who don't know is a hip-hop musical about the life of alexander hamilton the first treasury secretary of the united states which is ridiculous when you say it on like that it's such a crazy idea for a show and Mm. i was very skeptical about it and then like listening to the album for the first time when it became available to stream and being like Yep. Okay. This is really, really good. Listening to this the second time, and then uh, over the course of the last uh, like ten months or whatever, very much reaching that point of Felicity Huffman esque intensity about the whole thing. Mm, yeah, I, mean, I think there's going to be an awful lot of people on my side of the Atlantic in the UK who probably don't know what Hamilton is. I mean, I know that there are quite a lot of, um, and I, I actually kind of thought of a good name for the like people who like Hamilton, um, Hamilton Academicals. Because mm-hmm. there's that football team, and yep. it's quite an academic thing to kind of be into, because you will at some point, uh, even if it's just like kind of opening Wikipedia and disappearing down that wormhole, want to look into it in some kind of uh, in-depth uh, way. But yeah, there are quite a few people on Twitter you'd see kind of talking about it, but it's really kind of an unknown quantity over here. There's a lot of people that I know, kind of even people who are into musical theatre, who generally have no idea what it is. Well, yeah, I think it's a large part of it of why it's been a big hit over here is that it does tap into obviously the story of the founding fathers and the birth of the United States. So that's obviously something that a lot of people know about in the abstract because you learn about it in, in school over here and, uh, and in kind of history lessons. And it's a part that is kind of mythologized and venerated in a big way. And this is like a genuinely new and interesting take on it. And then also because it tells it through the the medium of rap and hip hop, which is a... It's not uniquely American, but it is a form of music that originated in America and which is, you know, kind of associated with the country in a very visceral way. And even though, like, Britain has rappers, it has a, it's had various rap scenes over the course of the last 20, 30 years, and it's produced a lot of really great British rappers, it's not as kind of central to the culture in the way that rap is over here. So it definitely feels as if it kind of has touched on two particular nerves in that it is about someone that a lot of people have heard of and they know from the money, um, the fact that he's on the $10 bill, uh, but it's telling it them details that for a lot of people were kind of very, very new. And, and so it's kind of delving into the American psyche in a way that doesn't necessarily make it appointment viewing or appointment listening, I guess, in the UK. Hmm. And it's important to state that, like, one of the the kind of the interesting things about the musical it is performed by a ninety percent non-white cast, mm-hmm. and it's like I we've talked about this off air, uh, myself and Ed. I would uh, would you count yourself as to be like maybe a student of history, Ed? Uh, I have a degree in history, so yes. There you go, a student of history. I do not consider myself to be a student of history. I would say that from now to about 1900, I'm passable. Mm-hmm. And then 230 million years ago to 65 million years ago, excellent knowledge. I love dinosaurs. <laughs> All that stuff in between, I just class as olden days. 
I don't really know an awful lot about anything that happened between those and, and, and none of it in any details. I don't know any kings and queens. I don't really know much. So when I listened to Hamilton and I've been kind of learning about all this stuff, I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool, man. Like, I didn't know, like, that there were so many kind of famous black people in American history. And then I was like, <laughs> fuck, dude, those people weren't even black. My mind's been blown by this musical. Yeah, it's it's I think one of the great things about it in terms of it as a kind of a cultural event and certainly in terms of if you really want to get into the idea of it as an American artwork is that it really does emphasize the idea that American history is not just the uh, the purview of white people. Obviously, a lot of the people in the early days were white and they kind of dominate it, but it doesn't necessarily just belong to white people because America is an increasingly non-white country. And I think that the fact that you can listen to it and kind of think that and get the impression that the founding fathers of America were uh, not white uh, certainly indicates the the power of the show in making these figures more universal than they would otherwise be. Mm. And I mean, let's not forget that America was never a white country. Mm -hmm. They just kind of turned up and made it one. Um, True. You know, I, I do know that much about history. It's uh, kind of, we talk about this being the a good time to talk about it because Lin-Manuel Miranda is leaving and kind of handing over the reins to, to a new Hamilton. But it also kind of comes at the end of a, an astonishing period of success for the show. It's won kind of a huge amount of Tonys. I think it was nominated for a record amount and it won all of them it could, apart from the ones that uh, it, it only beat itself. Like when mm. three actors were nominated in one category and obviously one of Hamilton and one of the other two had to lose out. Um, it also kind of won Grammys. Um, it's also won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, which um, is not often handed out to musicals. There's only been nine musicals that have won it in nearly 100 years of that prize being on. So this is kind of a big deal. And kind of there's not much footage of Hamilton online, as you could expect, because it's a fucking musical on the stage and you should go and see it even though tickets are rarer than hen's teeth but it's it, it, I kind of watched the the Tony Awards footage earlier today that is kind of on YouTube in kind of appalling quality um, but it, it kind of was notable for the fact that the segment where uh, the cast of Hamilton performed a song from the show was introduced by the fucking President of the United States mm-hmm one and then uh common came on to kind of actually introduce the the company on stage and he described the uh show as one of the greatest pieces of art ever made whilst that is clearly kind of i don't know a little bit hyperbole and kind of swept up in in the the kind of the hype of it i guess like i can I think one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by Hamilton and one of the reasons why I've become so taken with it and probably one of the reasons ultimately why we're sitting here talking about it is I can see that being true. Mm. And in, in 50 years' time, looking back at it as this, you know, kind of the thing that changed Broadway or like the thing that kind of suddenly just kind of opened the door to, to like so much for a lot of people that kind of never would have got their heads around something like this. It just seems like the kind of the Rosetta Stone of, of something. I don't know what. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I think it's it's the sort of thing that I'm always very wary about proclaiming. Like, like I I always feel like it's bad to proclaim like an album or a movie or a book a masterpiece until you're at least like ten years out. Mm. Because I think if you do it at the time, then you run the risk of 
raising people's expectations or you run the risk of being wildly off because in 10 years time the film might be completely forgotten um or you know like 10 years down the line you'll be able to say oh this film or this book or this album like influenced it changed everything it influenced everyone everyone stole from it Mm. uh and i feel like saying that hamilton is like one of the great works of art when it's still in its like original run seems like a step too far but it's also hard to deny the things it's done that are genuinely unprecedented like you know people have tried to make hip-hop musicals happen for about 20 years and all of them have failed and fallen more or less into obscurity Mm. like the only one like in recent years there was one even just a couple years ago called holly if you hear me which involved songs by uh, included two-pack songs and like not long after that show failed a lot of people were like talking about well i guess that means that hip-hop's done on broadway because that was kind of the most uh the, the example that seemed to have the kind of the best chance of succeeding and really bridging the two uh but this one has succeeded in a massive way you know it's sold out until next january on broadway it's going to have a kind of permanent second home in chicago it's going to go on a national tour it's got all of these things that come along with a show being kind of a seismic success and like one of the things that's interesting about it is it's kind of the first one where it's a rap musical where rapping isn't the subject like the hip-hop culture is not what the musical is about and like Questlove, who produced the uh, the cast album has been really involved with the production for a long period of time has talked about how people always came to him with production ideas for like hip-hop musicals and they were always at some point about graffiti artists who are gonna you know kind of be doing b-boy dancing and stuff like that and it all just becomes incredibly embarrassing when you try and do that stuff on a broadway stage where it's completely alien Mm. but here you use that hip-hop isn't the subject it is very much the medium for conveying uh, a story about the founding of America uh, and about this one man's kind of phenomenal rise and kind of meteoric fall <laughs> and eventual death in kind of a in in a in a duel uh, and I think that's what's really interesting about it is that if it maintains the success if it inspires more people to try and do rap musicals and they are also successful then there is a real chance that rap will be will become an intrinsic part of broadway musicals in the same way that rock music is now an intrinsic part of broadway musicals after the success of like hair and rent and things like that Mm, yeah yeah i mean we're just opening ourselves up for a a kind of swathe of uh american histories told through the medium of uh, of hip-hop Mm. Um, I wonder. I just wonder how many kind of pale imitations there'll be, or whether people would just be like, "This is so fucking unique and so kind of out there that you know I'm not even going to bother." Because that's I think that's the what kind of really stunned me the first time I listened to it was just the sheer breadth of ideas mm. and and just kind of just like raw intellect that is in the music. I mean, yeah, it's it's an incredibly dense play as well. It's 24,000 words over the course of two and a half hours, which is more words than in any of Shakespeare's plays. Wow. Because they are delivered at such a furious clip, it doesn't feel like you're being hit with all this, you know, these, these, this like 40 years of history or whatever it is. No, uh, like 30 something years of history condensed into two and a half hours with this cast, like, 
hurling out ideas that are not only kind of hitting the beats and the, of the story and telling you about the characters and everything, but which are really investigating the idea of what history is. You know, the difference between the past, which is the things that happened, and history, which is how we perceive them, how we tell that story. Uh, and that is kind of one of the big things of the... That is one of the big themes of the show. And it's one of those themes that is baked into the characters in a way that is incredibly clever and natural. You don't realise how deep its exploration of that theme is until you've listened to the the album yeah, 50 something times <laughs> but it's it's really there and it is such a it's such a wonderful work and it's so dense and so delightful to unpack whilst also you know being hugely enjoyable as a work of musical theatre mm, yeah yeah I mean I wouldn't cast myself as a musical theatre like aficionado or anything and you know I've, I've kind of got some cast albums that I've heard but just none of them have have kind of caught on with me the way that this has. And, yeah, I think it's purely down to me. I don't know about you, but what keeps bringing me back to it kind of on a repeated daily basis currently um, is just kind of just searching for those little bits that are, like, references to things that I clearly kind of can can see references to things, but I don't understand them looking them up and be like, oh, okay, like the one you told me before we went on air about... Uh, John Adams and there's just being one throwaway line which is a reference to kind of like an older film. Yeah, there's a, a line that goes, sit down John, you fat motherfucker, which is all about uh, Alexander Hamilton writing a scathing pamphlet excoriating John Adams and, and kind of fatally wounding his presidency, which is and the line, shut up, uh, sit down John is directly taken from the musical 1776, which was a, a previous attempt to kind of dramatise the lives of the founding fathers and and kind of aiming to do a lot of the things that Hamilton does but within a more traditional music theatre kind of context mm. and I think that like well I remember again having my mind blown by the fact that the kind of repeated repeated phrase of I'm not throwing away my shot and when mm. in a duel when you don't fire your gun which is what Hamilton does when he like gets shot at the end he's called throwing away your shot I'm mm. like, wow, that's so clever. That's like totally clever. Mm, and that there's the, and also there's the wonderful bit of foreshadowing, which isn't apparent the first time you listen to, but you know when he's singing in uh, "Dear Theodosia," which is the song where he's singing. He and Aaron Burr are singing about becoming new fathers and their kids, and they both use the phrase, "You know, you'll blow us all away." Mm-hmm. And then in the second act, uh, 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 Philip, the baby that Hamilton is singing to is killed in a duel and he is literally blown away mm. uh, and just kind of there's it's it's a wonderfully constructed it's just a wonderfully constructed you know play in terms of its foreshadowing and it's kind of the way that you can see all these threads kind of moving and and even in terms of the the casting the fact that in the first half of the play has characters that don't show up in the second half because they either die or they kind of go off to France and so they have the actors playing dual roles in the first half, the same actors play uh play John Lawrence and the Marquis de Lafayette and uh and uh, uh Hercules Mulligan. And in the second half they all play 
uh, they play like Philip, the aforementioned uh, person who is blown away, but also Thomas Jefferson and uh, and Madison. You know, so you see have people who are hugely important in Hamilton's life, but in very different contexts. You know, in in the first half, they're his best friends. In the second half, they're his kind of most bitter enemies, and mm. that is kind of a wonderful thing, both because the actors do an amazing job of differentiating differentiating between these very different characters even just in the way that they wrap the lyrics but also just from the the kind of the, the dramaturgical uh angle of it all mm. what also kind of surprised me about hamilton is obviously i kind of sit down and i'm kind of listening to it and thinking wow this is incredibly clever i mean obviously the songs are actually very good as well but like there's a real kind of emotional depth to it because like when I listen to it, maybe the second or third time, I'm kind of like starting to pick up the words and kind of, uh, you know, shouting Hercules Mulligan while on the bus and stuff, um, <laughs> which is, you know, not great. But it's probably a good way to weed out fellow Hamilton sympathisers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I get to the point where you're like you're listening to songs like uh, Dear Theodosia and uh, It's Quiet Uptown. And you're thinking, is that something in my eye? Oh, no, <laughs> I've been genuinely touched by this musical I haven't seen. Yeah, I mean, It's Quite Uptown is one of the most devastating songs I've ever heard. <laughs> it's just really, really beautiful. And I do feel that that's one of the really amazing things. I think that that is one of the things that comes across when you have something that is essentially an opera. So you you aren't really missing a huge amount of the play by listening to it. I mean, there's one song that is only in the play that you don't hear on the album. But other than that, you do get the entire sweep of the whole thing. So you are getting the whole story you can get involved in these characters lives and their emotional journeys over the course of it uh, as you're being kind of swept up in these stories and, and in these songs mm. um do you have a favorite number from the show ed uh the one that i like the most is wait for it mm-hmm. which is for those who don't know is the kind of the big song for aaron burr who is the narrator of the the story he was the vice president of the united states he was also uh hamilton's friend and then bitter rival who ends up shooting him in the aforementioned duel and it's a song about him essentially formulating his philosophy of life which is that he's someone who is very cagey and doesn't take many chances and who is also incredibly jealous of hamilton who is someone who takes incredible risks and chances and is becomes hugely successful and it's it, it kind of establishes in in three minutes of kind of uh vaguely dance hall orientated pop what their conflict is but uh, my actual kind of favorite the one that I've, i look forward to the most is one last time which is the song between hamilton and george washington where they compose his farewell address just because i think it's a wonderful showcase for christopher jackson who plays washington uh, and I've, i find his delivery of the line about the uh the vine and the fig tree to be really, really touching and moving. Mm. I think my favourite song, and I think the one that I would kind of push people in the uh, direction of of listening to, if you kind of want to get a vague idea of what the sh- the show is about, is uh, York, the Battle of Yorktown uh, mm-hmm. or the World Turn Upside Down, because it is uh, a it's a fucking great song, and it's like uh, a real kind of toe tapper, as my dad mm-hmm. might say, but it also kind of. Uh, features pretty much everything that I like about the musical. Some really kind of smart, funny, uh, kind of intricate wordplay, uh, but then also uh, changes of musical styles. 
kind of like really dense historical information. Um, lots of the little kind of like cool clues that like you kind of listen to and go, what's that about? Why are they taking their ammunition out of their guns? And what's Rochambeau mean? I'm confused. And then you look at it and you're like, that's just fucking really clever. That's my favourite one. And plus it's also got the Hercules Mulligan bit in it. Yeah, where he comes on and uh, kind of DMXs the the whole thing up by just kind of being incredibly loud and aggressive in a way that's hugely enjoyable. It also That also contains uh, a line that means a lot to me, which is when they go, immigrants, we get the job done, which has mm. someone who is an immigrant to America, uh, albeit one who hasn't doesn't really suffer from any of the uh, problems that other immigrants do because you can pass if you're english over here you don't really get the uh, hate and scorn so much you know that does that does mean an awful lot to kind of have a, a something that reaffirms that by being here that uh, you enrich the country mm. and it's weird that the british people get a pass because we really cause the most problems mm. uh, as illustrated a lot in hamilton <laughs> Yeah, it's weird how history treats you. Yeah, I can't remember who it was who said this initially, but I heard it quoted by Mark Kermode, who said that being English over in America is like having a is like a qualification. It does <laughs> it does feel like something you can put on your CV, and it does seem to open a lot more doors for some reason. People are just um, dazzled by the accent in a way that they shouldn't, because we're terrible people. We've done awful things to the world, but. Mm. As long as we have people like John Oliver to convince them that we're all smart and erudite, we'll probably be all right. Yeah, yeah. We talked about how it has kind of like crossed over to being a kind of a gen, like a genuine cultural phenomenon. Why is that? Like, why and how has it? I mean, I can't think of any other Broadway musical doing anything like that. But like, why now? I feel so much of it is down to social media and the internet in a large way because. Like if you look at the progress of of the musical, it followed a very similar progress uh, progression to Lin Manuel Miranda's first play in the Heights, which was you know that it was in development for a long time. He was working ideas. They workshopped it. They performed it at the Public Theatre in kind of um, in uh, uptown, um, no sorry downtown uh, Manhattan. And, you know, it got really good reviews, but it was very much a local phenomenon. You know, people were excited for it in broadway and in new york and people who followed that closely were excited about it people who knew who miranda was from his previous work were excited that he had a new play coming out but once it became available to stream on uh, on the npr website and then later through apple music and everything i think that was a real game changer because then people were spreading it around people saying you have to listen to this thing and uh, and again because the album is more or less the entire play people got a sense of the whole thing in a big way Uh, and so people's obsessions were fueled by knowing that you were getting a pretty full experience of it you weren't getting the entire experience of seeing the play live and all the staging but you were getting a very full experience of the story just by listening to the album uh, and on top of that, you have Miranda's online presence on Twitter and things like that, doing videos for Ham for Ham uh, in the winter when it's too cold to stand out outside the theatre and perform for people uh, and, and be and offering a level of engagement with the audience that I think is, is more or less unprecedented. He offers people an insight into his process. He offers an insight into how the show gets made in a way that hasn't been possible before because musicals are not 
tend they don't tend to be written by millennials. <laughs> they don't tend to be written by people who are just so kind of shamelessly nerdy and enthusiastic as he is. Mm. And it's if I think of stage musicals, I think of Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, face, which is not a thing to think of. <laughs> um, and the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda seems to be, you know, one of the most likable presences with, with such kind of amazing energy all the time. And um, yeah, kind of, he's, he's what my grandma would describe as one of life's nice people. He certainly seems that way. Yeah, I mean, the, the stage manager for Hamilton, Jason Bassett, said of him that he is as much an observer of his remarkable life as, life as everyone else. Mm. And I kind of feel that's a big part of it. He does seem amazed by the things that have happened to him. And that makes, even though, you know, the level of success he has enjoyed should be sickening. You know, yeah. it, should, it should make him you know, kind of a horrible egotist that everyone hates. The fact that he is just seems so genuinely amazed by the people he gets to meet and the work that he gets to do and the success that he has, you know, it's very endearing. It makes you want to want him to succeed and to share in his success, even in the most vicarious way of, of seeing him tweet about the amazing things that he does. Mm. I saw yesterday that he was, because it was his last day yesterday, as we've said, like it was like I'm having lunch and it was just like sat in the chairs with one of the ushers, this kind of like old ladies and usher at the theatre. I was like, you bastard! Why? <laughs> there's got to be something. There's got to be some skeletons in his closet somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And when it's interesting you say about social media, like the first time, the first time I actually heard about Hamilton was through a joke headline from one of my favourite Twitter accounts, uh, The Reductress, mm-hmm. uh, with the headline being, I can only come to the Hamilton soundtrack. And I was just like, what's the Hamilton soundtrack? And then kind of when people started talking about it, and kind of just I was just oh, okay, it's a musical. Yeah, cool. I'll just, yeah, log that and, you know, pretend to be interested later when someone talks to me about it. But then, like I said, here we are. In terms of, I mean, the show is called, the, the kind of the strap line of Hamilton is, uh, an American musical and obviously it tells the story of a kind of deeply important part of American history if not the most kind of important era of American history full stop um, but kind of why it's fascinating so many people and why it's been successful is because of what it seems to say about America what does it say about America Ed? Well I think like like I was saying earlier about one of the things that's that's really key about its casting is that it does say that American history may have been shaped and the founding of the country may have been shaped by white men, but that doesn't mean that it only belongs to white people. American history belongs to everyone. I think that that's a big part of, of what it has to say about America is that it is a nation of immigrants. It is a nation that from its very inception has been changing and shifting how we really, how we feel about it, what the country as an idea means. Beyond that, I do feel like it's interesting because it's the past being kind of represented by America now, but it's also kind of a little bit of an image of a future America in a sense, because obviously America is currently 64% white uh, and the cast is like you were saying is 90% non-white. And, and as time goes on, America is going to become less and less white. It's going to become, I think by 2042, I think is the, uh, is is the estimate that is the year when people expect it will tip over to being uh, kind of more than 50% will be non-white. Uh, and so the vision of America that is offered by the by Hamilton is in some sense not just 
America now, but it is also kind of what America will eventually be, which is an incredibly diverse country and not the overwhelmingly white one that it has been for, for much of its kind of lifespan from its founding to now. And I do feel like that is an important thing to say. It says that diversity is is a net good. It's something that should be embraced. It's also, I think, argues for the difficulty of govern that governing is difficult, but it's something that you need to do and you need to have principled people who believe in what they're doing do it, that disagreements don't have to be kind of fatally ideological. There is room for compromise. I think it's something that offers a very hopeful and optimistic view of how terrible and difficult things can be overcome. I think it's very interesting that it has come out at a time of kind of record polarization in American politics, that it is something that at its heart, even though it involves someone being killed over kind of a political disagreement, it also spends a lot of its time on the negotiations that are required for things to actually happen. Uh, mm-hmm. in america which i think is a message that i i think if if nothing else i think would something that you would hope would resonate through all the people who see it and listen to the album that they will go out and and try and use that approach in in their daily life and if they move into the the political realm mm. i think something that i thought when listening to it and again with my limited grasp of of any kind of history let alone american history is that you know these are People in this are faces on the mountain on Mount Rushmore, right? They're kind mm-hmm. of these iconic people who, you know, the the great founding fathers. They're all the people who are, that kind of make up the cast of this story. But what Hamilton does very well um, across the board, really, is make those kind of figures from history kind of into kind of complex characters. I mean, the two main characters of of Burr and Hamilton are both difficult people. They have their contradictions. They have uh, their weaknesses and you know the, you know in many ways they're not good people and that's like not a particularly popular way to present people in history especially when they are described as kind of the heroic founding fathers of your country yeah i think it does an amazing job of humanizing them and, and making them into flawed figures particularly even though he's not a main focus of it i think it does a lot to kind of puncture the image of thomas jefferson who is someone who did a lot of great things and was a great statesman and a great writer and things like that but he was also someone who owned slaves and he had a sexual relationship with one of those slaves and fathered a lot of children with her so he was not a de facto good man he was someone who allowed for the propagation of the great stain on the american soul in american history which is the propagation of slavery and you know embodies in his character the abuses of of that system in in many ways and i think it's important to say you know that that these men they may have done this this amazing unprecedented thing which is you know defeating a colonial power wrenching back control and forming their own nation was something that no one had ever done in human history and they had managed it but Mm. they were also like you say they were difficult people they were people who were flawed they were people who were wrong about things and maybe didn't have the best view of things, maybe didn't think through the consequences of some of their actions. And that is something I think that is a valuable thing to say, to say that there is that no one has a monopoly on how these men should be perceived. It is up to each generation to determine what the legacies of, of Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton are. Mm. 
or to put it more succinctly, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, Ed? Mm. As as is said multiple times. Mm, yeah. Obviously central to Hamilton, as we've said many times, is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And uh, he is uh, sickeningly, like three years younger than me, and is most likely going to be the youngest ever EGOT. Is that, that's probably going to happen in the next few years, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's got two years to do it, but he's written the songs for Moana, the new Disney movie, and that is usually a pretty safe bet for Oscar glory, unless there's some like small indie musical with original songs that will come in and pip him. But it definitely feels like... And that's the last one he's missing. He's already won an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony. So, uh, multiple Tonys. So, mm. he is he is definitely going to be an egotter, an egotist at some point in the next couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, and and that's kind of... kind of He's, like we say, he's a big part of as to why it's crossed over. But when we're talking about um, how it's crossed over, I mean, just even if you're not someone who follows musical theatre news, it was difficult to avoid the news that he was leaving. We even reported it on this fucking show, and I didn't read it on any musical theatre blogs. I read it on, like, fucking Slash Film or something. Yeah, and, and like, the AV Club, which is obviously kind of another big one, was reporting on it, but also I was looking just for examples of the coverage of its day, and, like, People magazine recorded it. It said, like, five things that will change when Lin-Manuel Miranda leads Hamilton. It's like... They didn't do this when, like, Fun Home changed its cast over, you know. It is definitely a musical that is covered in a way that is, you know, that shows that it is a big deal in the way that, like, The Walking Dead is a big deal. It's kind of a big cultural property. And even though its appeal is arguably more niche than something like The Walking Dead, although it's hard to gauge that because I don't know, no one knows how many people listen to the album. It could be many more times what you know the um, audience of the walking dead is it, it definitely feels like this thing that is a, a major pop culture touchstone for a lot of people uh in a way that no musical that isn't like based on a pre-existing property uh like you know like a lion king musical uh has uh, in the in certainly in my lifetime Mm. that's just it isn't it like an original musical the the kind of big musicals that are out now are like you say the the spin-offs of tv shows or the kind of uh celebrations of bands i think there's a kinks musical now in in kind of in the west end which is kind of the big one but you know that's fighting for attention between you know the madness musical and the beatles musical and the jersey boys and you know all those kind of things it's you know refreshing to see something original take hold in such a in such a kind of like crazy way and also you know if we're going into kind of a broader culture you know we're a film podcast and mainstream film is in something of a malaise at these this point there's not a huge amount of original stuff that really breaks through although you know this year we've had zootopia and secret life of pets have both been big successes so clearly there's room for original animated movies to be successful but it's very encouraging when, like you say, when something original breaks through and becomes an unprecedented success in a way that so many original things don't because they don't really get the chance. So something to see something that is hugely bold and risky be rewarded for the chances that people took on it is 
uh, amazing and deeply heartening, I think, for art in general. Mm. I think that's, you might have kind of hit the nail on the head there a little bit, like when you and I talk endlessly about how frustrated we are with with many kind of elements of, of kind of certainly mainstream filmmaking uh, and blockbuster filmmaking, which is something we'll talk about next week, uh, listeners. That it's no surprise that something is kind of startlingly uh, original and vibrant and kind of just downright interesting and clever and perplexing certainly suddenly captures your imagination. It's, it's no real surprise, is it? No, because I think that, you know, Hollywood wants people to think that remakes and sequels and things like that are just pretty much the way forward franchises shared universes all this sort of stuff and there is value in those things i'm not saying that you can't have good remakes you can't have good sequels you can't have good shared universes we have plenty of those things in abundance and you know some of those things come out every year and some don't terrible attempts at all those things come out every year as well but it's like it 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 feels so sad when that is kind of the only thing on the menu mm. and that you are only getting those things and the few original ideas that come out and which are hugely successful don't lead to a cascade of new original ideas coming out it's the same problem that like every few years there's like a female-led comedy that comes out and that's a big success and they're like yes that means that we're going to finally get people realizing that women can open a movie and then it just it leads to maybe a small flurry of them, but then the status quo kind of reasserts itself. And uh, it feels like we may be reaching a turning point with that because there are more female-led movies coming out than than there have been in recent years, but it feels like a very kind of slow, terrible process. So when something comes out and cannot be ignored as being an original thing that has succeeded in a huge way, it, you know, it, it at one level you think, you know, that maybe this is just... Um, this is just a black swan maybe this is just one unprecedented thing that doesn't have an impact beyond itself but at the other level you kind of think if people kind of craven money-minded people see this and decide oh there's money to be made in original things maybe people will finally take a chance again Mm -hmm. and if they do get a chance don't throw away that chance slash shot uh, (laughs) because uh, you'll end up being killed by someone you thought was a friend, but doesn't really stand for anything. I'm getting my metaphors mixed up here. Um, But yeah, Hamilton is amazing and kind of beguiling and fascinating and just also just a great record as well. I'd say that, you know, if you like hip hop, you will kind of be impressed by the kind of the vocal dexterity of, of everyone involved. It's not a straight hip hop record. There's a lot of kind of more traditional musical numbers on there including kind of like an up, up-tempo jazz number for, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, when Jefferson returned to America, is that right? In what, what Did I Miss? Yeah, What Did I Miss, which I think he has said is, is very closely modelled on, or very clearly modelled on like proto-hip-hop stuff, like, you know, Gil Scott Heron kind of era stuff. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's just a straight-up good record. Seek it out and listen to it. Um, and speaking of that particular song, I would just like to say that David Diggs is amazing, <laughs> uh, who plays Jefferson in that song and also plays the Marquis de Lafayette in the first part of the show, and I believe has a record for the fastest ever rap on Broadway, which I don't imagine there's a huge amount of competition in that category, but his dexterity on the mic is quite a thing to hear, and to imagine that he has to do it every single night <laughs> is nothing short of superhuman. Mm, he has one of my favourite raps in the whole show where he says uh, how you say anarchy anarchy when I fight I make the other side panicky 
which yeah, is great. is pretty good because that carries through because you know it follows his his story about how he's uh, you know the nation's was it the nation's favorite fighting Frenchman is that what they call him it, exactly yeah uh, and also there's a great book that came out last year I think called uh, called Lafayette and the somewhat United States by Sarah Vowell which goes into his story and his story is every bit as crazy as Hamilton's uh, he's an amazing historical figure uh, and and anywhere in america that is named lafayette which is like there's millions uh, well maybe not literally millions but not far off it of streets and towns and everything named after him uh and it's amazing that he and all these other semi-obscure or genuinely obscure historical figures are suddenly becoming kind of pop pop culture touchstones uh which mm. is a lovely thing to see happen yeah i think it's it says a lot that they were going to change uh because uh, hamilton is on the ten dollar bill uh, they mm-hmm. were going to change it up, uh, and they were going to take him off and stick someone else on. Um, and then they decided not to do that in the light of Hamilton's success, and they changed the $20 bill in- instead to put Harriet Tubman on. Is that right? Yeah, Harriet Tubman's going to be on the front replacing Andrew Jackson, but he's going to be moved to the back, uh, which feels like a half measure considering Andrew Jackson, not one of the best presidents, also a slave owner. So it seems a mixed message, but I guess... Uh, American history is not; it doesn't really have any kind of uh, blemish-free figures uh, to put on money. Um, but yeah, that that was the thing I thought was really funny because in doing the research for this, going on like the Wikipedia site for Hamilton and seeing like legacy on it, and I was like, the play's like a year old or two, mm. three years old. It's already got a legacy, and that was the thing it was about. I kind of thought, oh yeah, I guess that that is a genuine legacy if you've affected government policy, even in a, a relatively minor way. Mm. It's interesting that, like, just saying that about people being on money, like, when we're long dead, like, in 200 years' time, it'd be like the $50 bill would have, like, Jack Nicholson's face on it or something. <laughs> that just seems absurd to me. Uh, but, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, that's Hamilton, everyone. Um, if you don't know what it is, then, you know, get amongst it because you want to sound like a clever dick when other people are talking about how good it is. You can say, well, I was on Twitter before it was cool. Um, if you've already heard about it and if you're already into it, then we apologise for kind of just preaching to the choir. But there we are. And more importantly, you can be ahead of the crowd when you get to complain about the no doubt substandard film version that comes out in like 10 years time. Yeah, yeah. And Lin-Manuel Miranda said that it, there would be a film version, but not for like a good decade, decade and a half. But I imagine there'll be some pressure put on him to, to make that a reality. Mm. Yeah, but he's in the Heights is going to be a film like fairly soon, they say. But so who knows? What have we got for recommends this week, Ed? Uh, well, I mentioned at the start when we were talking about Abbas Kostami, his movie 10, which has just recently been added to, to uh, Mubi. And I would recommend people check that out if you want to kind of get a easy way into one of the kind of the great modern filmmakers. Uh, it's a film that consists of 10 conversations between a uh, a woman driving her car in Tehran and her the people she talks to, including her young son, her sister, a prostitute, an old woman she just picks up one day. And it's uh, on one level, you know, it came out in 2002. And and like I said, it's a full embrace of digital technology. The whole thing is shot using what essentially amount to kind of dashboard cams pointed at the two actors in each scene and just cutting between the two. But it's also a wonderfully human movie about, you know, the interactions between these two people and kind of on a subtextual level arguing that it's the 
mundane details in life that ultimately unite us and that's what makes us have more in common with the people of iran than you know media and the government would suggest in the kind of way of demonizing them and suggest and trying to push for a war as was in the in the news quite a lot back in 2002 and 2003 so it's a a kind of a wonderful and, and each individual scene is just kind of wonderful funny touching you know it has all of these these wonderful things these characters having these great interesting conversations about what's going on in their lives but i think it's a just a, a wonderful example of his humanity as a filmmaker and his willingness to try something kind of but for the time certainly very bold and, and unexpected and crazy mm. maybe talking um all set in a car shot with dashboard cams it's essentially the iranian marion and jeff <laughs> yeah pretty much i think that's what they put on the with the box mm, that's what i've gone for um i'm going to recommend this week's the kind of the tonal opposite of uh, an abbas kuristami film um, I'm going to go for the latest season of the FX show Archer, uh, which has um, arrived on Netflix. It finished on on the regular telly um, a couple of months ago, I think. And the reason I'm recommending it, we've talked about Archer before on the show, uh, but the, the reason I'm recommending Series 7 in particular is because it's a show in which uh, it's, this season sorry, is, is taking a bit of a diversion from its regular programming. The characters of Archer are spies, um, and get involved in various levels of kind of international espionage successfully and often not so successfully. But in season five, they took a detour and became drug dealers in what is known as the Archer Vice season, um, which uh, was not successful. It was kind of a joke that was funny for about 10 minutes, but it stretched out to 10 episodes and it wasn't good. But this season is kind of diverted it into the kind of um, LA film noir scene uh, they've become private detectives and a lot of the tropes they talk about and a lot of the kind of the situation to get into are kind of uh, borrowed very heavily from films like Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity and things like that and it's firstly it's a kind of a really really funny show and a really really funny season but secondly finishing it made me realise that is a really consistent TV show because with the Archer by season aside that's six incredibly solid seasons of television and it's no surprise to me that it's been uh extended for another two years yeah i mean that that and it's always sunny in philadelphia another fx show i think are two shows that have booked the trend of shows kind of being able to remain at their most creative and funny the longer they run uh, neither of those shows really seems to be losing steam as they find new ways of making their increasingly hateful characters <laughs> kind of interact with each other and destroy each other uh, and i think that the change in setting really helped archer to kind of find its feet after the, the vice season which was kind of an experiment that didn't work too well season six where they kind of went back to spying but it, it kind of felt it was still funny but it kind of didn't necessarily feel like uh, they were entirely back on form so to see them uh, try something new that works kind of amazingly and, and gives them one of their best seasons is, is a really heartening thing to see happen. Mm, 
Cool. That's your lot, everybody, on the subject of uh, Hamilton. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can follow us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook, too. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different, namely um, the current crisis facing the blockbuster. But until then, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>